This is the Movie Good or Movie Bad podcast. Today, we're talking about satires in the suburbs with John Waters' 1994 classic, Serial Mom, and the 2019 surrealist black comedy, Greener Grass. While James is not outright spoiling these films, various plot points and themes will be shared that most would consider spoilers. Here's your host, James Willey. Hey Haley, thank you for that amazing intro. If you didn't know, my name is James and this is the Movie Good or Movie Bad podcast. I greatly appreciate you all being here. Uh, this feels like a long time coming. <laughs> you know, whether you're someone who knows me in my personal life, somebody who knows me on TikTok, Letterboxd, I feel like this is the natural kind of culmination of everything in terms of my internet presence uh, and talking about movies. So I greatly appreciate that you all kind of are just in presence for that here. I also appreciate everyone's kind of patience with me navigating this delay, uh, getting things started. If you didn't know, long story short, I was sick a few weeks ago, had to delay the episode a week. Uh, and then two weeks ago, the SAG after strike begun, or a time of recording, 10 days ago, the SAG after strike begun. Uh, they were asking influencers, you know, people on TikTok, things like that, not to cross the picket line, not to talk about films from struck companies. If you don't know, a struck company is your is your major studio that's right now currently in active negotiations with uh, SAG-AFTRA and the WGA. That's your Sony's, that's your Paramount's, uh, Warner Brothers, folks like that, right? Anybody who's not struck right now is anyone who's international, anyone who's indie, so your A24s, your Neons, that kind of thing. Those films are safe to talk about on here, and that's kind of the focus of the podcast. Probably at least for this calendar year, uh, I will shift into newer releases, probably moving forward after that. Obviously, I'm in full solidarity with those on the picket line, those people who are struggling right now to get health insurance, to get paid, to not have to worry about moving from job to job, right? Those people are much more important than me, and obviously the people who are also more important than me are the people right now on TikTok, uh, and also the podcasters who, you know, make their full incomes off of these apps or just streaming right now through podcasts. I'm greatly worrying about them. I hope that they're doing well in this time. It's going to be a tough couple of months, honestly. I think so. Uh, these studios don't really seem like they're going to give up. And for anyone who's on the picket line who's hearing this, I'm in full support of you all and will do anything that you all ask of us. It, it, it's funny that I... I talk about this, I mentioned this now. Yesterday, I actually did an interview with a high school student who's part of, I think it's the Yale Summer Journalism Summer Program. So I think high school students work with Yale's undergrad students who work on their paper, and they essentially, for a week, they do a program. I think at the culmination, they write an article and then it gets printed. Um, but someone who listens to me, or at least watches my videos, decide, hey, I want to reach out and see... Um, if James will do an interview. I did. We talked about the strike right now. I think it was a great conversation. I was very happy with the way that it turned out. But anyways, I do want to make sure that we talk about the theme of this week's episode because it is very, very special to me. We are talking about suburban satires or satires in the suburbs. The reason that I picked this theme is that this is my favorite subgenre of film. Um, I don't think there's a, well, I miss maybe my favorite theme in film. I guess there's not a one genre that's associated with it. Sometimes it's absurdist humor. Sometimes it's drama. Sometimes it's horror. I think all those things fit into this category. But I think all throughout our lives, if you live in the United States, you're fed lies about the American dream and what is capable for you in this country, especially as people of color, especially with, uh, you know, as a person who is the child of at least one immigrant, right? You're told all these things and they're not exactly possible and you don't realize that until much later. And I think the white suburb is the most perfect presentation of that that we get in media. It's this very pristine, very perfect, very kind of tight inside the box 
box kind of presentation of what America is like. And whenever we tap on that and kind of crack that shell a little bit or dig a little bit deeper, we kind of see all these flaws and we see all these things that aren't really working. And it leads to horror, it leads to comedy, it leads to all these other feelings. And I think, you know, The suburban satire really taps into that, and I think it really does something for me personally. Um, There's so many films in the genre that I love, and when I thought about the two films that could best represent this, I thought about Serial Mom and I thought about Greener Grass. Obviously, Serial Mom is a 1994 John Waters film. It's a bit older, not an old film by any means, but certainly one of the older examples that I think of when I think about the genre. Um, I think Greener Grass is one of the more recent examples I think of. Now, I will say that Serial Mom is a lot easier to follow in its presentation. I think it's easier to just follow, period, right? It's probably one of the more normal films I think John Waters has made. Uh, Much love to John. I've met him before. He's fantastic, by the way. If you're not familiar with Serial Mom, the synopsis says, A picture-perfect middle-class family is shocked when they find out that one of their neighbors is receiving obscene phone calls. The mom takes slights against her family very personally. It turns out she is indeed the one harassing the neighbor. As other slights befall her beloved family, the body counts begin to increase, which I feel like is a very accurate look at what the film is. But I think there's something about the... There's an absurdity to the humor, but I think everything else underneath that is very kind of... It fits in that box, that suburban box, right? Um, I think some of the shock comes from who he cast in the film. Like, you have Kathleen Turner, you have Sam Watterson, who probably people best know from uh, Law & Order at this point. You have Matthew Lilliard in his debut role, uh, or or one of his debut roles. He calls this his debut. I know he did one other film before this. You have Ricky Lake, who's probably best known for being in Hairspray, another John Waters film. And everyone in this picture does not seem like they do a John Waters film. They don't seem like they're camp at all, and they perfectly fit into this camp image that John Waters has, and, and this critique that he has of this perfect suburban life, because it doesn't exist, right? Regardless of people trying to push this image it's not a real thing. It's never been real. You can question it, right? I think the other thing that really strikes me about this film, it comes out in 1994. It comes out before the O.J. Simpson trial. And the reason that I mention this is that there's a scene in the film where Kathleen Turner is on the run from the police, but it's a very slow, like, she's driving the speed limit car chase, and she's trying to get away from them. And it parallels the O.J. Simpson car chase so much. And there's actually a special feature on the Blu-ray where, I forget who it was, it might have been the casting director reached out to John Waters and was like, hey, do you see what's happening on TV right now with this O.J. Simpson trial? Or not the trial, the the car chase. He's like, oh my god, we filmed this months ago. Sierra Mom's not even out yet. I think the other thing that it really taps into that I think is really not apparent until now, until like the 2023, is this deep fascination with true crime. Now, true crime has been something that people have fixated on for a very long time, uh, way before, you know, more recent years. I feel like there was a real spike and boom that happened in like the late 2010s, or I guess maybe from the early 2010s until now. I feel like we've had some more conversations based on the television and TV that are the television films have come out recently. Um, But still, people are very much focused on true crime and still consuming it regardless of that criticism. There's a scene in the film where uh, I I won't I said that there's going to be spoilers for at least some of the bits of the film. That I think that's the only way to talk about them. But there's a scene where there uh, there's an opportunity for serial mom merchandise. Like Kathleen Turner's character is known by the media as serial mom, not just as like a persona for the serial killer, but like no, she is really known as the serial mom. That's not something that people question. And her kids are selling T-shirts with her face and name on it, and kind of glorifying her. And people are just eating the shit up and 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 
and buying it all, right? It feels so real to everything happening now, right? Uh, not to say maybe not as blatantly or as absurdly, but it does feel very real to, I think, the way that people consume true crime now. Like, someone would wear a Ted Bundy shirt, someone would wear a Jeffrey Dahmer shirt. There's this really poignant scene where someone who is, I believe, the child of one of the victims of, of Zero Mom is really mad at her son, Matthew Lilliard, and was like, what are you all doing? You're all protecting her, you know? Like, why would you do this? And as soon as he realizes oh, you can sell my likeness and sell my, the rights to my story being told to the studios. He was like, oh, okay, I can do this and make money and just completely sheds any of that aggression and and sadness that he had at that point. I think that's so telling. It's so smart. And I think that's so underappreciated about this film because this film did not have a really great reception when it first came out. Now, when people ask me where to start with John Waters, in case you're watching this podcast and haven't seen his films, I think he's a fantastic filmmaker, right? I think it's very important to start with, uh, this is a great start, Zero Mom's fantastic. I also think Polyester, which is also another satirical look at the suburbs that he did, but in a much more John Waters conventional package. And by conventional for him, I mean strange. I also think Female Trouble might also be a great place to start if you're just curious at all. Yeah, so that's where I'll start with that. Other things that really stick out to me as I watch this film is just, like I was saying, the kind of this poking of the box and the willingness to crack the shell of under everything underneath the suburb. You see that so immediately in the film when you see Kathleen Turner's character just freak out when there's a fly in her kitchen, right? Or this was such an interesting motif that I didn't notice the first time I watched this film. I only noticed upon rewatch, whenever she sees somebody chewing gum, she just loses her mind. And I don't know what that's about. I mean, some people view chewing gum as dirty or it's 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 just something that not like i guess refined people do in her mind uh and i see that with i think it's her kids or at least one of her kids friends and also the police officer in the beginning that was so interesting and like you see these little things just start to escalate all throughout the film i wrote this down where she is reacting to every bit of disorder in her life anything that she perceives as disorder right some of these things are truly not disruptive but she reacts with even more disorder by typically killing these people, right? And then she's upset that things don't fall into equilibrium. Like, these, everything in, in these people's lives is even more disruptive, right? Like, she kills a teacher in the beginning of the film. Some pothead catches her, and she just loses her mind because, you know, if she wasn't caught, right, everything might still be in this equilibrium. Granted, you know, like, police were looking for her and that kind of thing. They still, even at the very end of the film, so, like, when you get to the end of the film and she she gets off, they're going to make the, the TV show or the movie, Suzanne Summers is going to do it, she kills the juror because she's wearing white shoes. That is such an avoidable task, and I know I'm explaining absurdist horror that defeats the purpose, I'm acknowledging that, you can laugh at me for that, but it's just so interesting how the, there's continuous disorder even until the end of the film. Oh god, the neighbor. The neighbor, it's so funny when this this flashback happens. I, I This is one of my favorite scenes. When the neighbor cuts her off in the parking lot of this grocery store and she just loses her mind and just starts decides to start prank calling her and calling her nasty names and call her dirty shit and all sorts of things like that it was wild to me <laughs> how quickly that all escalated like I, I was watching it with a friend for the rewatch and she was like wait that was it like that was the only thing that happened that caused everything to escalate so much it's like yeah i feel like this was the other thing i feel like that perfectly captures karen culture like the way that we talk about karens and like obviously karens have existed forever that's not really a question but i feel like john waters even perfectly captured that and how these things escalate and grow 
truly remarkable stuff. I, I forgot this upon rewatch too. The investigation into her starts so early in the film. And what is so interesting to me about that too, and maybe this speaks to Karen culture, the way that society views white women. She was able to completely get away with everything at first because everyone was like, oh, she's way too innocent for this. She couldn't do this. Uh, I, I know this woman. Kathleen Turner is my mom. She can't do any of this. Right. I think that was so fascinating to me because that feels so true. And I don't know if John Waters intended that level of commentary. Uh, He certainly can. He's a remarkable man, fantastic filmmaker. But I think that's just really fascinating. Um, (laughs) There's a scene, sorry, I'm reading my notes, and there's also another scene where someone is pouring just random recyclables into the trash. And it's so funny to see Kathleen Turner and these two trash men and recycling men just kind of oogling this woman. And one of the trash men utters, you know, someone ought to kill her. And everything about this, I I think that's so key to this film. Everything in this is presented as some form of self-righteousness. Everything that she does is to, there is a motive to it. There is a reason, although that reason is flawed. And I think that's amazing. Um, I think the Wilhelm scream, so if you don't know this, this is like a stereotypical scream that you hear in like your Indiana Jones, your Star Wars, things like that. It's this really wild scream that you use. And the funniest use of this scream I've ever heard is in is in um, Serial Mom. It, it has to do with when someone catches or killing somebody, and he just screams, and it's this guttural Wilhelm scream. I think it's one of the most amazing uses of editing I've ever seen in a comedy film. I don't know, I just think it's so remarkable. I mean, you could make a list of all the ridiculous things that she decides to do in order to kill any of these people. It all feels ridiculous and it feels absurd. And again, I'm exploring and explaining absurdist comedy, so it sounds ridiculous. But I do think that John Waters really taps into something so special here and something that is so misunderstood. And I feel like this genre really taps into. Again, it's really funny to get back into this and and watch this film in reflection, or watching this film and kind of knowing what we do in 2023, and recognize, you know, did John Waters mention all this intentionally? You know, how much of this, you know, did he mean? How much did he not mean? Again, a genius, but so much of it feels so prophetic to where we are in 2023. Um, I feel like you can only do that if you're making these films about the suburbs. It's such an untapped ground, right? Uh, and I feel like there's so much to so much to do there, and I feel like Serial Mom is so foundational to that. I, I don't think Serial Mom is the film that digs the most at the suburb, but I think it's the one that's most willing to put a mirror up to it and say, look at all these things and how we're, we're maintaining this system, and I think that's really brilliant. So now we will shift to a much less conventional and surrealist film, Greener Grass. If you're not familiar with Greener Grass, the synopsis says, suburban soccer moms find themselves constantly competing against each other in their personal lives as their kids settle their differences on the field. And I think that is so, so true. I think about suburban soccer culture, right? It goes back to this picture-perfect look at the Americana life. And at the soccer field, you can have your kids just duke it out. They can just fight each other. Although soccer is not a really big part of greener grass, I do think it is crucial to the critique and the commentary that's there. And, you know, while I was debating if, you know, John Waters was doing anything intentionally with Serial Mom, especially kind of knowing I'm looking at this with a completely different context than he did 30 years ago. I do think Greener Grass is very intentional in how it approaches its subject matter. I think this is a film that is deeply funny and also deeply uncomfortable. Like, there's so many moments where we're just staring at something and a scene lingers and a scene just kind of wavers over just people doing uncomfortable things. I think of the example of (laughs) there's the scene where one of the main characters is accidentally kissing her friend's husband 
and her friend is also kissing her husband and they're just deeply making out for 15 or 20 seconds in slow-mo with their zoomed in on their faces. It's like, oh yeah, we're kissing the wrong husbands. Let's go fix this. And uh, they just keep going at it. And I, I think all of that is deeply, deeply uncomfortable. So if you've seen the poster, if you haven't seen the movie, go see the movie. If you look at the poster, you can see that there's a giant set of brace-covered teeth. I think that speaks so directly to the uh, the perfectionism that's kind of there in this culture, in this society, and like, which is a reflection of real suburban culture, I want to be clear. I feel like there's such a need to people please with everyone in this film. I think about it when Jill, one of the main characters, has a baby. I, I believe this baby is maybe a few months old, not clearly not a year. Um, Lisa says it's cute, and she's like, oh, do you want to have her? And she was like, yeah, of course. And when Jill talks to her husband about later, it's like, oh, but she asked nicely. And he was like, oh, okay. And that's kind of, (laughs) that's the end of the story, at least until much later in the film. I feel like it speaks to this unnecessary level of placation that's happening, right? Like she doesn't really want to give up her baby, but to save face, she has to give up her baby. She doesn't really have a choice. And I think that is so brilliant in that commentary. Um, and also really funny. Just really, really funny. <laughs> oh, that's right. I wrote down the husband says, oh, next time just talk to me first. Like, that was the issue. It wasn't giving up the baby. And that leads to ba- <laughs> that leads to Lisa later in the film having three children, her birth child with her husband, uh, this baby who she took, and then eventually misnames, which I think is so interesting, and a soccer ball later in the film that she, she shoves a soccer ball underneath her shirt, pretends she's pregnant, pretends she gives birth within days, and no one questions it. I feel like that speaks to this level of like not wanting to question the suburbs, not question what anything is happening underneath any of those things. I think that is so, just so ridiculous. It's so, so ridiculous, and it's so true. All throughout the film, there's this random stalker, and I've seen this film maybe four times in the last three years, and I feel like every time I watch this, I have such a different interpretation of what's going on in these scenes. I think the random stalker is some kind of reflection of Jill. I think it speaks to maybe her true and kind of carnal desires, yet she is a physical person and manifestation in this world, so maybe that kind of decredits that a bit, right? But all throughout this film, we see the stalker just laughing and kind of snickering in the background and kind of muttering these same things that Jill's saying. And you notice at some point she starts to look around, starts to hear those things. I mean, maybe that just speaks to her kind of cracking around the edges, because I think as a main character, she really is shaken by the end of this film. Like, so much happens to her that, like, while we're watching this from the context of a comedy, I think she could easily view this from the context of a horror film. This is horrific for her. I think it truly deeply upsets her and i think she doesn't know where to go from here um especially you know when she has a son she has a son who's fucking pissing all over the couch that she does not like uh she clearly does not like julian regardless of everything and i think that is where the first fray that we see is her son is so imperfect he's so bad at piano so bad at soccer so bad at school and yet she's stuck with him and i feel like that's so representative as well the drinking the pool water thing now i've thought about this quite a bit too and maybe it's because pure water like pool water is so purified and and clean and maybe that's why it's something that beck bennett uh who's on snl uh jill's husband is drinking all throughout the film it's so interesting I, the pool water thing is so funny to me. I, I can't get over that. All the children in this film, I'm also fairly sure, maybe this speaks to like a real dynamic, and I do really feel this. They seemed so much more aware. They seem so much less brainwashed. They seem so much just kind of like, hey, things are not okay in this world. And I feel like that's so representative too of how kids are in the real world. Like, I feel like as you grow up, you're aware of all these social cues or all these things that you see that your parents are doing, you're like, hey, that's kind of 
fucking weird. Why are you lying about this? Or why are you doing this to this person? Or, you know, and I, I think that speaks to what was going on with the kids. It was interesting to see, I believe it was Lisa's son, not get indoctrinated in the film. He just became just an even bigger asshole by the end. And obviously that leads to Julian becoming a dog in the film. Now I think, I understand if my kid turned into a dog, I would be upset too. Uh, I understand Jill's reaction, but it's so funny to see her husband be like, oh, he's so great at catch. He loves playing ball. He's a better student. He's so well behaved. As soon as Julian becomes a dog he fits into this picture perfect society that exists and also by extension he also fits in this picture perfect kind of i guess position where he's someone who can't talk he's someone who listens to orders he's someone who can't question you back he's someone who probably eats everything that you put in front of him right as a dog and that fits perfectly into the society and i think that speaks so well to the way that adults treat children generally not all adults but some some parents for sure <laughs> the teacher being called miss human by darcy Carden, a fantastic actress by the way i think i wrote this down uh the kids when they're just raising their hand in class saying my parents aren't getting divorced and we're supposed to tell people uh that you know like kind of like normalizing that and miss human's like oh yeah very very good and there's all these things that Miss Human is having them do in the classroom, and all of them kind of center around, like, we need to have these very honest conversations about what's happening. I didn't view it as normalization, but I viewed it as, like, kind of reducing any of your emotions or feelings towards those things. And I thought that was quite remarkable as well. I think this film is very deep. I think comedies are very deep in general. There's so much commentary in this film that's, I think, very obvious. But I do think this film is genuinely deep. Um, there is a comment, and it's something that that Jill says to Julian about how he needs to try on the soccer team because everyone makes the all-star team. And I was like, hold on, wait a minute. And again, that speaks to like this whole culture with participation trophies and making sure everyone feels like they're at the, the top of this thing, the top of this ladder, the top of this game. And there's no room for like, hey, it's okay, you're just average at this. Have fun at this. Like, be imperfect, right? And I think that's much needed commentary. And I wish more people saw the film for that. <laughs> there's so many allusions to colonization all throughout this film. I think this is like my biggest takeaway that I think about whenever I think about this film or watch this film. We first get this when they talk about the, the horse skeleton in the backyard. I was like, oh, that's really, really weird. And there's a whole conversation about how horses came to America and where they're from and how they're actually brought from Europe and that kind of thing. I was like, huh, that feels like weirdly in-depth for this kind of film. And then by the end of the film, we see this graveyard that's that that's underneath of the soccer field, right? And obviously we, we get the final scene, which I, I do have a lot of reactions to, but it literally, the, the children were dancing on the graves or like kind of playing on the graves of the people before them. I felt like that was so profound. I, I find that so profound. And every time I watch it, it hits me a little bit differently. Um, I, I think about that too with Jill at the end. So at the end, if you haven't seen the film, she she's no longer with her husband. She decides to divorce him. And she kind of has this encounter with a stalker woman. It leads her to running away and finding a child and stealing them. More importantly, this child is a person of color, is, is a, a black girl, and she takes her. 
and she takes her and nothing no one questions it when she comes back to the soccer game again i feel like this is some kind of allusion to colonization and slavery and i mean there's granted there's other black folks in the film and granted like this is not a thought that i have fully thought out because i have such different reactions every time i watch it but i do wonder if it's some kind of allusion to slavery or, or colonization in some kind of way at least of breaking off her braces i feel like that was that had a lot of deep meaning like what does it mean to break free from this desire to be perfect what does it mean to break free and give yourself a choice we're going to shift to the hot take segment part of this podcast uh i am running out of time uh, i do want to name that i want to share this person's response verbatim because i do think it's important um they asked to be anonymous and not only that they would not share with me who they are so i have no idea which one of my followers this is they shared and i want to repeat this verbatim i don't understand why people insist that sequels be original we're here to see movie name two if you want to watch something original then watch a standalone film it drives me nuts now i can't name struck films as examples when i first came up with this wanted to respond to this prompt i had a bunch of examples can't name any of them so I'll, I'll name this kind of generally i think people have a right to ask for original films especially when it comes to sequels i think we're seeing we're in an age where hollywood films are so derivative and this is not me shitting on writers or anybody involved but it's what the studios want but studio films are so derivative when it comes to sequels that people are just kind of like oh this is the same movie and over and over again so there's like just a lack of interest it's boredom i think you can have those things carry now i'm let me take that back for a second i do think that you can have sequels that are not original that are, are maybe not derivative but have similar themes or have at least similar narrative beats or like a narrative rhythm to the first film but it must be outstanding quality. I think people are willing to accept that sequel films are not original when they're of outstanding quality. When they're mediocre, I think the originality argument comes up a little bit more. Um, I can think of some pretty solid examples, all from the 80s and 90s, but I feel like there was a slew of sequels that were, on paper, they look so different in presentation to their first film, but thematically, or at least narratively, they're all tackling the same beats, same rhythms. And in one of those cases, from one of those examples, I'm thinking of a science fiction franchise the original film and the second film while i don't see it as much there are a lot of similarities but people love them both because they're of outstanding quality there's another set of films which will be much easier to identify but they're both released in the 90s where the second film was basically the, the exact same rhythm and same narrative of the first film and the point where it completely undid the character arcs of the first film and i think that's why people felt betrayed or disappointed it was just kind of like hey like what is any of this right this isn't the i feel like i lost everything that i got from this first film and i think that's where people feel betrayed like it feels not too different but it feels like you're retreading to similar ground i think if you can make a sequel and it feels similar and you're treading different ground and it's of high quality the originality is a non-issue i actually don't think that most films are original i think a lot of films derive a lot of things from you know other pieces of art other films and i think that's completely okay the thing that matters at the end of the day is quality so i understand where this person is coming from but i do not agree i think i tend to not agree i think films should be original if they're sequels it just makes it more interesting it makes it don't don't be so safe i i think the safety is what really bothers people yeah so that's how i answer that well everyone i greatly appreciate you being here for the first episode of the podcast like i said this has been a long time coming 
I really love these two films. I'm glad that we could talk about them. If you listen to this podcast and you still haven't watched the films, I do highly suggest that you do if you love absurd comedy. Uh, we have a very fun theme planned for two weeks from now. Haley's going to share it during the, the close-up, but Haley, take us away. This has been the Movie Good or Movie Bad podcast, and we hope you enjoyed that episode. Next week, the theme is The Internet is Scary, and we're talking about We're All Going to the World's Fair and 2020's Host. Thank you to Josh Willie for providing art direction and Miles Kennedy and Kyle Eve Townsend for the music of the podcast. Please support us on Patreon where you can see episodes a week early. Thanks for listening.